Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Adoration doesn't come along easily. No one knows that better than Raheem Sterling. Vilified and criticised, there was a time when, despite being the most exciting young English talent in a generation, he was also one of the most unpopular footballers in the country. Those days are behind him now. Not only has he progressed on the pitch to become one of the best players in the world, he's spoken out on social issues, including press ethics and racism, to become one of the game's most widely respected figures. Adored, you bet. So what's the story here? How did he change? Or did he change us? The man himself reveals all in the forthcoming issue of 442. I'm Connor Pope, and for today's episode, I speak to my colleagues Chris Flanagan and Hunter Godson about going to meet Sterling, and to Stephen McInerney, the man behind the Man City YouTube channel Esteemed Company, about one of the greatest club sides this country has ever seen, and the role Raheem Sterling has had in shaping that. Chris, Hunter, you are the two that went to interview Raheem for the new magazine. What kind of person is he like? Chris, let's start with you. I know you've interviewed Mm. him before. So you've met him on a couple of occasions. Do you think he's changed over time? Yes and no. Well, I I spoke to him first, I think it was about three years ago. I think it was just after the Euros. And he's definitely, he's he's more open now. And obviously he's he's more opinionated. I think he's got that confidence to be a bit more opinionated. But there's still certain things. It was was interesting. It kind of went in a similar way both times. And that we quite often we'll do the photos first when we meet a, a, a player. Um, and he came in on, on both times, the last three years ago and, and this time. Mm. And he was, he was, you know, he's very friendly, shook hands and, you know, was, was absolutely, you know, he was lovely in terms of how he greeted us. But then he's very, noticeably very quiet um, for five or ten minutes, just just kind of while we're doing the photos. Mm. You know, he was, he was difficult to get a bit of small talk and banter out of him, which is fair enough. I think, and what actually came up in the interview afterwards, he was saying that he's always been like this in that when he meets new people or, you know, people he doesn't know so very well, He'll he just he'll just spend a few minutes just sussing them out, right? Okay. Um, just I mean, naturally, you know, if you're a superstar that everyone wants a piece of these days, you've got to be careful who you trust. Uh, yeah, and you meet you a lot understand. of people. Yeah, yeah, you meet a lot of people. Um, so and and you know, obviously, his relationship with the media hasn't always been easy. So mm. in the media, he probably needs to figure out which people he is willing to trust as well. So Hunt, yeah, Hunter, this was the first time you'd met him. Did he suss you out? <clears throat> Us, yeah, I agree with what Chris said. Basically, as he walked over, he sort of looked at us, and I don't know if he was, it was what was he, he was expecting. I don't know whether they'd sort of briefed him on what our setup was, but um, as he came over, yeah, quite quite meek. And then we asked him to take his shirt off, not just because we wanted to see what we done, <laughs> it, but because we had a shirt for him to put on. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of awkward. A guy you've never met walks over, and two minutes after that, you're going, oh, "Yeah, could you put this on, please, mate?" And he's putting that on. Um, yeah, but, but then, I mean, by, by the end, by the time he'd done the interview and everything, he was, uh, he was chatting, he was asking how we were getting home, you know, mm. he was, 
he was asking if I was going with Chris. And I was like, now nah, I'm getting the train. He's like, why are you getting the car with him? Go on. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he just sort of came to life. But, you know, you can understand why maybe it takes him a while. I think it's interesting, Chris, what you say about um, he's become more opinionated mm. over the years. In yeah. fact, he does say in the interview, you know, when you're young, you don't want to upset anyone. Yeah. You don't want any more noise than you're already getting. Obviously, he was, you know, such an expensive player, yeah. already a superstar as a teenager. He says, so you bite your tongue, leave it. Mm. But if you feel strongly about something, mm. then you you have to have that. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that when he did speak out last year, he spent years not really well, as, as, as you say from that, not really wanting to do it. And it was only because he was pushed into this stupid situation where he was getting this criticism and then what happened at Chelsea that it got to a point where he had to say something. Yeah. Um, and that I, I suspect had his career not gone how it's gone in the last, had it been a smooth progression, he may not have reached this point that he, he, he has to, well, has to speak out and actually it's been a very good thing both for him and for what he stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, although he was quiet when he came in to, for the photos, but you know, like, like Hunter was saying, during the interviews, he's really engaging and he, he got very talkative and, and, and very friendly and it, it was, it was it was a pleasure to speak to him. I, it, I only had a, a shorter chat with him three years ago. It was maybe 10, 15 minutes. But even in that time, it was noticeable how much he mm. opened up. And this time, you know, we had best part of 45 minutes. And it was it was a really nice chat. It was, it was really good. And like, and like Hunter says, by the end, he was, he was laughing and joking and uh, a real good rapport. Mm. What I found really interesting was that for someone who has a reputation of being quite outspoken now... Um, we wanted to use some of the audio <laughs> in this podcast, but actually listening back to it, he's so softly spoken mm. that um, the quality kind of wasn't <laughs> quite good enough. I think you'd, you'd, listeners would have had to be straining yeah. just to hear the words. Yeah. I think that's a kind of a weird thing. But obviously it was also in a, in the training complex with yes, some, yeah. some eight-year-olds playing next, next yeah, time, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, basically it was a massive indoor hall at Man City's. I mean, Man City's training ground is amazing, by the way. Um, and like, there's a little, there's a, like a dividing curtain between yeah, the kids' yeah. eight, eight-year-old t- uh, training session and then us and a few other media, um, they're doing their things and we obviously we, we had Raheem Sterling there. And it was funny how um, this kids' game was going on and a few minutes in, this ball just came around the dividing curtain. And they obviously had absolutely no clue that Raheem Sterling was on the other side of this curtain. So what, yeah. one of the kids came through and suddenly he's face to face with Raheem Sterling. He's like, he's like <laughs> he's stunned, doesn't he? Yeah, he was. <laughs> uh, and then, interestingly, for the next five or ten minutes, a lot of football seems to yeah. start arriving. And we thought, yeah, that's these probably, are, probably the, the knew why they were. They were kicking it. The, these are <laughs> eight-year-olds who are quite good at football. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if they want to stick it over the other side of the curtain, yeah, yeah. they'll they all, <laughs> over the every other time. Side they yeah. all wanted to see Raheem Sterling by that yeah. point. Yeah. They also clocked one of them had clocked that Kevin De Bruyne was sort of mulling around the mm. other end of the pitch. So then slowly they were all going that way as well. It was great. Because also I find that the, the idea, he does get this label of being outspoken, mm. is not quite right because certainly it seems he's very specific about what he says. Yeah. Do you, do you get that, that sense that he's yeah. careful about his words? Well, like I say, I, mean, I, I don't think he's outspoken for the sake of it. Like I say, mm. it took years to get to this point, and that was because he was pushed in the direction where he had to say, well, enough's enough. Mm. Um, so he's not certainly not a natural person who would have taken this on. Yeah. Uh, and like you say, but he is very softly spoken and, and was very careful to choose his words on certain subjects. Mm. Um, but he's, you know, he, he, he started to speak out last year. Um, it obviously was... Well, very well received that people agreed with him and he was right to say what he, so, so I think that fear of 
like you say, you had that fear two or three years back. If I say something and people don't react in the right way, this will make things worse for me. Yeah. Now he's now he has said something and people reacted, didn't react in the wrong way. They actually agreed with him. He thinks, well, okay, I, I, I can say something now and, mm. and don't have to feel afraid about it. And I think that's great. I think that's interesting what you say about this being um, not not something that would be natural to mm. him and that something he feels he has a responsibility mm. to do, almost something that has happened to him. Yeah. There's a great quote where he says people now come up to him in the street and they thank him for standing up for himself but also for standing up for Absolutely, yeah. a whole society, he says, which is a really interesting comment in, into the way that he thinks. And um, I mean, usually I try and keep this podcast on on big topics mm. and not be topical because I think there are a lot of topical fo- mm. football podcasts out there. Yeah. But I think we do have to touch a little bit about <coughs> what happened this week. Obviously, on Monday night, England played in Bulgaria and the team's black players were targeted with racist abuse. There were organised neo-Nazis in the crowd. Yeah. The Bulgarian manager played it down the incident and Bulgarian journalists heckled Gareth Southgate at the conference afterwards. Now, Raheem is obviously one of the most eloquent voices on racism in football, but he also scored two goals on Monday. Um, we didn't really cover racism in this interview because he wanted to talk about the positive aspects of football and about his game. But, yeah, I think um, he was keen to talk about football in this one, yeah. yeah but yeah. but what kind of other stuff did did come up, do you think? Well, I mean, what, what we did obviously talk about is the, the criticism he's received. Mm. Um, now, part of that is around what happened in terms of leaving Liverpool. Um, part of that is the press coverage he's had on, on a wider on a wider scale of the last well probably five years now, yeah. And how he you know how he felt about that that he felt that for a long time he felt there were people who just didn't want him in the England team no matter how well he played no matter how well he played for Man City that he he said in the interview that before I stepped onto that pitch for England he felt people were ready to criticise him yeah mm. um, and it's obviously fantastic now that he by his performances has has completely turned that around and. You know, the, the whole country, you know, loves him now and has huge respect for what he's doing. And I think that the, when we talked about it in the interview, the, the key game for me was, was Spain in the Nations League in that he'd gone 27 games without a goal for England. So even in the World Cup where he played well, he was part of a team that got to the semi-finals, there were still some people mourning at him because he'd not scored. Yeah. The fact, when he scored those two goals before half-time in, in Spain and then has gone on to score very regularly ever since for England... There's absolutely nothing left you can criticise him for anymore. There shouldn't have been anything to criticise him for before that, really. Mm. But people were still doing it. Now, you, you can't criticise him. He's speaking out on on topics that are right to speak about. But he's, he's doing the business on the pitch. There's nothing to criticise him for anymore. He's afforded himself the platform, though. Because where, I mean, where social media is the, the most damaging thing for a player's brand, it can also help them. And before, he, when he was getting criticism from these, uh, you know, the certain areas of the press uh he still felt that people were saying well that's a completely unfair criticism we shouldn't be allowing allowing them to say this but but the player himself wasn't speaking out and after he's come out you know he's got he's built this platform now where if they no one would dare touch him because because of the backlash that they, that they get and you know that's where he deserves great uh credit because he's he's completely come out and changed his perception um and the and he's com- created it himself he's mm. created a, an atmosphere that other players feel like they can do it as well now can I ask you quickly about the cover frankly I think it's one of my favourite 442 covers probably ever yeah it's Raheem Sterling wearing the Manchester City away shirt from 1999 when they won the playoff final to get out of what was then 
Division Two, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, Division um, Two. Yeah, yeah, Division Two. Yeah. But I think it also works because Raheem Sterling himself is something of a kind of style icon. He's very cool. Do, do you think that's an element of his? I think if you look at this this cover, it just yeah it oozes confidence. It oozes cool. You, there's no question that the guy uh, knows what he likes. I mean, even when we asked him to take that shirt off, as I took as I sort of took it off him. He gave me his rings as well. And I was like, my goodness. I think I made a comment, actually. He gave me his watch. I was like, right, I'm off. <laughs> That's me for life. It's just incredible. The guy is, yeah, like you said, he has become a style icon. Not just because, and I've said this before, but style icons these days, they're not, they don't just dress well. But, you know, they, they believe in not necessarily a political stance, but they it's have... Attitude, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And they, they believe in something. And, you know, younger, younger people now, they are more driven towards people who stand for a certain... Uh, you know yeah, yeah. A, a, a certain political stance a certain social stance and Raheem is one of those one of those guys that's interesting um now you also asked him about Messi and Ronaldo yes <laughs> um can we can we compare he's one of the best in the world mm. now we know that that's not really up for debate how close he is is he to touching those two, do you think? And, and how did he respond to that? Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the, the comparisons are definitely happening now. Mm. Um, there's been plenty of people in, you know, pundits and stuff who have started to at least talk in those terms, even if not saying, you know, quite on that level. He's, I mean, as he said himself, he's not there yet. I mean, he, he doesn't claim to be, and in fact, doesn't really want to be <laughs> seen as being, you know, he's got massive respect for two absolute legends of the game. Um, but, I mean, the, the interesting thing for me um, and I think Jamie Carragher talked about this as well, is that his progression reminds me of Ronaldo a little bit in that for a long time as a teenager, even in early 20s, everyone knew how good he was, mm. had all the skills, knew he was capable of kicking on, but just couldn't score regularly for some reason. Mm. And then Ronaldo did it at well, 21, 22, never stopped since. Yeah. Sterling is now in the last couple of years started doing it and showing showing absolutely no signs of stopping. And it was interesting where he talks about it in the interview and in that he's saying, well, yeah, there is a similarity. That not He's not saying that he's on Ronaldo's level, but there was an interesting similarity in that he felt that watching Ronaldo and him, himself, that when you break into a, a team at 18 or however old and you're seen as this big new up-and-coming star, you want to do all your skills and show, yeah, I'm, I, I am this great new talent. Yeah. And in fact, we talked about his debut for Liverpool. Yeah. Where he said his thought in his mind when he came on was how many stepovers I can do in this game. <laughs> and he said he got three or four in. And for, he, he, you know, Ronaldo, you remember all, all the stepovers he used to do when he was 18, 19. Yeah. And it was almost probably too much, really. And maybe it was you know, Sterling also was focused on wanting to, wanting to show his ability and his skills. And it got to a point for Ronaldo and for him as well, where people say, well, that's great, but you should score some more goals. And he said the penny eventually dropped for him that actually, yeah, maybe they're right. And then started to focus on how can I score more goals? Mm -hmm. Wasn't it his his mum who was berating him for not getting in the box enough? That's right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think that was, I remember, uh, yeah, I think when I spoke to him last time, three years ago, that was certainly a thing that was, uh, being said at the time, like his mum was telling him, get, get in the box, that's why you're not scoring more. And uh, the amount of goals he scores now through arriving at the back post for a tap-in. Yeah. And, you know, by, by no means the only goals he scores, but mm. that must add at least 10 to his tally each season. It reminds me of Robert Pires in the Invincibles team for Arsenal and that he'd 
they'd score so many like that where Henri or someone would, would just square it across goal and there'd be someone like Perez there mm. to score a tap in. And there's, you know, those, those goals count as much as the others. Absolutely. How much of that do you think you give to Pep Guardiola sort of moving him, moving him in from the wing, mm. telling him when to arrive? Because that sort of thing, I've said it before, it's easier to, it, it seems easy. Mm. Like you said, it seems like every player in the world should be able to do it, but it's an instinct. That's, I'd, I'd say you can't really teach it. Players either have it mm. and they know when they have to be there. You know, because even if you're a yard off, that ball goes mm. past you out for a throw in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think Pep Guardiola has moved him in from the wing, but I think it was always there. Mm. Um, his finishing's well, improved. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think what he's done is he's simplified his game. It, little things like, even, there used to be a thing where Raheem Sterling, when the ball came to him, he had this habit of controlling it with the outside of his boot. It, he couldn't really explain why he did that. It was just a thing he did. Mm. And Pep said, well, why are you doing that? Well, yeah. it, if you pr- control it with the instep, you can, you've got it controlled quicker and you can move it on quicker. I think there's a video of that, isn't there? Yeah. There's a video at City's training yeah. ground of Pep Guardiola. Every time the ball goes into mm. him, Raheem's touching it with the outside mm. and he comes over to him and he just yeah. goes, right, if you let the ball roll all yeah. the way across onto your yeah. other foot... You've opened your body up yeah. and you're away from that defender. Yeah. Whereas if you touch inside, you've cut your momentum, yeah. you're still. And it's just those little bits of and management I, that, I, that get into Again, I think that's brain. the thing of him thinking that the outside of his boot looked a bit cleverer yeah. and just trying to show his skills. Yeah. And he realised himself actually, well, yeah, if I want to get an end product out of this, I need to move it quicker. And, he, yeah. and also it's, it's simplifying his game and just decision making. Yeah. I mean... We we met him not long after the game against Kosovo where he scored. I think he set up three before half time, and you could just see from that game that every time he got the ball, he was making the right decision. He was either running with it when it was right to run, he was shooting when it was right to shoot, or he was picking out the right pass. And that wasn't probably the case always three years ago. Yeah, and it, his it, mum's it, clearly got onto him about that as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. She's just there with him every day now. So he says in this that um, he thinks that he needs to win the Champions League or the European Championships or the World Cup to be in contention for a Ballon d'Or. Obviously, there's a lot of second guessing involved in this, but hmm. do you think that's that's probably right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at who has won the Ballon d'Or over the last few years, and admittedly that's almost always Messi and Ronaldo, <laughs> yeah. um, they have always done something significant. I mean, even Modric won the Champions League, mm. got to the World Cup final. Yeah, you've got to you've got to be the key player for a team that does, like you say, Champions League or major international tournament. Yeah, but you look at the the you know the nine months ahead, Man City. I think still, as far as I know, I still bookmakers favourites for the Champions League. If yeah. they can just get yeah. over that mental hurdle that's for some reason is stopping them, you know, it's perfectly arguable that they're, they're the best team in Europe now. They've been the best team in Europe last season and maybe the year before that. So that's possible. He could be the star player in that. England, well, okay, we still, the defensive things against top level teams we still need to see. But mm. the attacking quality, if they get things together, they are capable of reaching a final, winning it. And if. If Raheem Sterling is a team is in a team that wins or gets the final of the Champions League, wins or gets the final of the Euros, then he's at the very least he's in the conversation for the Ballon d'Or next year. Final question before we move on: um, There was speculation that he could have been swapped uh, for Alexis Sanchez when City were interested in him a couple of years ago. He says in this interview that. You know, City have said to him that was never really on the cards. It, w- it wasn't really a prospect, but it did get reported. <laughs> Would that have been the worst swap deal of all time, given how those two players' careers have gone since? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it wouldn't look like a great idea now. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think? mean, there's there's not many that would have been worse than that. 
The only other one that comes to mind for me is when Blackburn swapped uh, James Beatty for Kevin Davis in yeah. 1999. Yeah. But, well, you know, Blackburn just weren't using him right. He, he, was, fine, <laughs> he was fine at all. <laughs> anyway, Hunter, Chris, thank you. Next, we'll be chatting to uh, Stephen McInerney about City and Raheem. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. You can pre-order the new issue of 442, including the Raheem Sterling interview now, and get it sent straight to your door because you won't find it in shops yet. Just check the show notes of this episode for the details. And why not take advantage of our brilliant deal to become a subscriber to the magazine? It's £9.50 every three months to get in-depth interviews with the likes of Sterling, Jurgen Klopp, Diego Maradona, Virgil van Dijk, Jaden Sancho and the England Women's World Cup team, as well as interviews that take us inside Lazio's Ultras, the fiery derby in the Arctic Circle, and the full story of Berry FC's sad demise. Head to myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash FFT podcast 19 to take advantage of the deal. Don't worry, that URL is also in the notes for the show. So Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we start talking about Raheem properly, uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the cover. We've got him wearing the away shirt from City's 98-99 season. Yeah. Just to give us a bit of context about what City are like now, could you tell us a little bit about what that year was like? Oh, that year was, um, well, I guess it was the exact opposite of everything that we are now, really. Uh, as a club, um, we were at our lowest ever ebb. Um, we, we could have basically been stranded there. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, that season was very much, well, to, to many City fans, that still remains the most important. Uh, well, that last that last goal from Paul Dickoff remains the most important goal in City's history because um, essentially it saved us from being stuck uh, down in the lower tiers for a long, long time because we were a club in a bit of a mess um, financially. We were a club that were having to you know loan players from Manchester United to try and get us back up again, which yeah. is something that we never want to do as a club. But Terry Cook came in and all that kind of stuff. And basically, um, it was a... Uh, for a club like Manchester City, and and God bless our fans because we were still bringing twenty eight to thirty thousand every week. But for a club of that size to be down in the third tier of English football, and um, we could have been stuck there forever. We somehow uh, failed to go up that year, and we've seen loads of clubs do a similar thing. And I think it's fair to say that if we hadn't gone up that year, then we wouldn't be seeing the Manchester City that we see today. Um, it is in many ways though it's weird looking back, and it's um, it's quite a fond memory really because. We can safely say, and I think Manchester City's position, especially in the modern era, is totally and utterly unique to any of the big clubs around. We can safely say we've been down at the very bottom and also experienced the top and the highs because you, you can't really say that for Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea fans. They can't really say 
they understand what it feels like, you know, to be in mm. our shoes. So um, even though it was awful, and even though we were terrible, and even though we only just scraped our way back through the playoffs, uh, that kind of defines us who we are as a club. And I think fans are quite proud of that, uh, and rightfully so, because um, we've seen it from every side. And there's something quite, I think, quite special about that, really, um, to really understand and relate to other clubs. And we definitely can relate to, as fans anyway, relate to a lot of the, uh, the clubs who are down there, because we've been there as well. And um, there's loads of great cool heroes as well from from that squad, obviously, Sean Goat, Paul Dickov, the likes of Ian Bishop and uh, Andy Morrison and people like that, uh, uh, and Nicky Weaver. And so they're really, they're just as revered to many City fans as the likes of David Silver. And, and rightfully so, because um, uh, well, cause they, they saved us, basically. Uh, and I do love that. I do love that. We've seen every side of the, 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 the coin. We've seen the dark days and we've seen the really, really bright days because... Uh, not many people can say that. Um, so, yeah, it's part of our history. Uh, I, I love it. I was a kid. I was only like 12, 13 or maybe, yeah, about 13, 14, something like that when it happened. And when we went down, I was devastated. And when uh, I thought we were going to get knocked out, uh, sorry, spent another year in the 30, I was mm. devastated. But oh, you live for those moments, don't you? Uh, I never thought we'd top that moment. We did eventually. But still, uh, yeah, I love I loved that season. I loved it. It's incredible to hear you say that that was probably the most important goal in City's history because obviously most people would immediately think of that Aguero goal against QPR but I think actually you came third that year in the third tier and I think that was your lowest ever league finishing which is incredible to think about what kind of team you became so quickly afterwards in the context obviously it's over 10 years but but it really is such a massive change um but to move on to Sterling now, what did City fans make of him when he first signed? Because he wasn't the most popular player around when he signed for City. Well, we were excited for him because um, why wouldn't we be? Because uh, we just signed, you know, a guy who just won the European Golden Boy Award. He was part of a uh, you know, really exciting attack for Liverpool. He was pace, he was dribbles, he was goals. Um, uh, he was uh, an exceptionally exciting young English talent from uh, a rival, uh, a team that just pushed us pretty close. Um, and obviously there was, a, I think in general, there was a little bit of scepticism because as a fan really and as a person, you can't really ignore a lot of the um, a lot of the noise that comes with anything really and you can't really ignore too much media stuff. And it, this was at a point where he was already starting to get a lot of criticism from certain quarters of the media. Um, so there was maybe a little bit of natural and kind of unintentional scepticism from some fans. But I think largely when he signed, people uh, were willing to support him. You know, I think a lot of City fans were excited by it because it was big money signing. He had, uh, he has, he had, and thankfully he's fulfilled that, but he had a exceptional potential, which we all knew. And he was already effective. And it was a, a signing that we uh, that even some City fans felt was maybe one for Guardiola in the future as well because I think we all knew eventually he was going to come and uh, I feel like uh, it was a it was a good signing as well because we took it from Liverpool and obviously yeah. that made the world sit up and notice that because uh, Liverpool you know losing someone like Suarez to Barcelona is almost understandable you know to because Barcelona or Barcelona and at that time even though Liverpool were a huge club Barcelona were the B team you know they had Messi they had Iniesta Xavi and that but losing one of their most exciting players to Manchester City uh, this kind of we were obviously still we already won the league a lot by them but we were still very much um, you know the, the new new kids on the block so to speak that did send a bit of a message so it was an exciting signing um, and one that oh yeah City fans loved it if I'm being honest and what ways? What what are the biggest ways in which you think his game has changed since he signed for you? It's been um, interesting to watch him really grow as a person, and I presume he would have said the same thing himself. But um, uh, Sterling 
um, you could tell he came as someone who was used to being second fiddle, you know, to likes of Suarez and so on, which is understandable. Once again, he's a you know, world-class striker. But um, I think uh, Sterling has kind of realised that um, his own voice is the strongest one. I really genuinely believe that, obviously, he's a father and um, he's obviously grown as an adult. He's matured. And we all know how much he changed from, like, 20 to 24 as an adult. You, like, you do change a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I think, in general, he was... Um, they say people change about every five years, don't they? And the personality shifts or whatever. And I do feel like Sterling, as a person now, not that he'd done anything wrong when he was younger, he was just obviously a little bit more, you know, like a rabbit caught in the headlights. And I think now, like, he is clearly much more willing to take um, responsibility. Um, and to me, a big moment was actually last year in the Carabao Cup final, um, yeah, with the, the last penalty, you know, with Chelsea. Mm. Um, he, he stepped up to take that, like, in front of thousands of people millions of people watching worldwide and that was the kind of moment where pretty much every city fan thought oh no he's going to miss this because it he <laughs> wasn't good in cup you know in um, big pressure kind of cup environments and um he put it in top corner and that like felt to me like a you can you can draw a line in the sand even though he was already scoring goals at that point but you can see you can draw a line in the sand where you feel like his conviction in his own ability um uh, that to me was a moment where you feel like you can see he'd grown and matured as a player and as a person and um i think he's realized that he can also, he can speak up and he can be vocal and it can be a force for good and that kind of stuff. And he has been a genuinely, and this is not exaggeration from a football fan, but he has genuinely been the victim of some incredibly unsavoury, you know, uh, character assassinations. And yeah. he's pretty much the, the, the groundswell of support has changed, thankfully. Um, but what he went through was genuinely insane. Uh, there was a moment in uh, England when he went through uh, for the second goal the other night and um, when he was one and one and it was the quality of his finish and the composure. Uh, he kind of slightly past the keeper. Uh, he was obviously in a horrible environment um, against Bulgaria. Hmm. And I remember just thinking at, at the moment, that's the kind of goal he would not have scored um, a year or two ago because he never used to have that self-belief. And, and more than that, I'm just happy because obviously more than football, you're just happy that as an individual as well, that he, 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 has, he can deal with this because he shouldn't have to deal with it. It's nice to see that he is, you know, he's obviously grown and he's strong. And it's good to see that he, he's become a stronger person for it because understandably he could crush many people, you know, what he's been through. And it's just... It's just great to see him grow, basically, as a, as a player, and but most importantly, as a human as well. Obviously, there is Kevin De Bruyne in your squad, there's David Silva, but I think Raheem Sterling is definitely in that mix now of, of being possibly the best player in your team. If City were to win the Champions League over the next few years, there's obviously a very good chance that a Ballon d'Or would go to someone in your team. Who do you think would be the likeliest in the City squad at the moment to win that? Uh, I still honestly think, yeah, it's Kevin De Bruyne. Mm. Um, I think he's the man that makes Manchester City tick. I think Kevin De Bruyne is uh, is going to win the Ballon d'Or one day. I'm almost certain that will happen. I think he's um, a bit of a freak. Uh, but Ryan Sterling, you know, I think that Sterling needs to, weirdly, to say he needs to score more is crazy. But I think for people to take him seriously, he's going to have to sort of have some kind of like, you know, 40 goal season, I think, mm. uh, even now, which is mad. But, um, but he's capable of that. He's getting better in his goals, he's scoring more, and he's. Uh, I don't see any reason why he couldn't keep going. And given the fact that he, he's gone from a guy who used to only score a few goals a season and miss a lot of cities, now he's you know getting uh, the, the numbers that he's getting now, then there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't add another five, ten goals on top of that and start getting around those numbers. So it's definitely possible, and we're going to see a bit of um, uh, a vacuum left from Messi and Ronaldo leaving. You know, so when they retire and 
walk up into the sunset, which would be a bad day for football. <laughs> but when that happens, there's going to be a bit of um, a free-for-all from the likes of Mbappe, you know, and then maybe João Felix will get get to that level. Kevin De Bruyne, Salah will be up there. and like, oh, Maybe Mane will get to that level. Who knows? Well, you know. But either way, I think it's fair to say at the moment, there isn't anyone that looks to have that kind of freakish ability that those two had. So it's going to be a bit open and there's absolutely no reason why Sterling couldn't be that. And we know, obviously, he's liked. We know he's important in football and um, uh, he's getting better. He's only young. He's got a long time left to do it. Um, he's a, he's a, you know, touch wood. He's, he's usually healthy. He plays a lot of football. Uh, he's, he's obviously takes... He takes off. He takes on what he learns, obviously, because he's improving as a player. And it's definitely possible. Uh, I think he has to be a part of Manchester City team that wins the Champions League to have a chance, or maybe an England team that did something special. Um, you know, if England did really well in the international competition, then maybe. But if Manchester City do well or England do well, still is going to be a huge part of that anyway. So he's got as good a chance as anyone really. The City are the bookies' favourite for the Champions League this season, but. It still seems that the competition isn't held in particularly high regard among fans. How come there's not more excitement around that? Um, it's it's very, it's very hard to say, and I don't want to speak for every fan, obviously individually, yeah, yeah. because because it's, I can only give you a, a, a relatively uh, well a rel- relatively educated kind of like guess at why, because you see it online, you see some fans who don't get it, and you see some fans who totally get it, um, and I think it's very much a generational thing to an extent, like um. City fans are definitely a weird mix of uh, fans that have been around and been watching the team when they're terrible. And obviously, we've got newer fans as well who are younger who only knows when we were great. Then we've got ones in the middle, like myself, who you see both sides of it. But I think there's a lot of cynicism towards UEFA. And to be honest, I, I think that's totally fair. I think UEFA absolutely stink. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of people don't realise um, how bad they can be. And we, we've City fans in particular, there's a lot of, a lot of the old sentiment. It's not about... Um, it's not. It's not about what people think. Is people don't think there's like this, you know, thick straws or anything like that. It's something crazy. But it's about. It's about years ago when we had a stadium ban for racism from you know uh, another team and City fans were banned from it and all that kind of stuff and uh, they couldn't go despite paying for the tickets and it all stems from that and it stems from loads of silly little things and in general I think there's also um, just a lot of cynicism I guess um, towards a tournament that we've never really felt kind of. Part of I don't I want I want Manchester City to win it of course and I'm I'm in the personally in the group that I I always want to be Champions League country first I just believe that like it's more important I don't think you're the best in the world if you win the Champions League like by default uh, I think you always have to be the best in your country for it to you don't have to be of course but I think it definitely eliminates any doubt like no one would say for example. Uh, when Roberto Di Matteo got in Chelsea to a Champions League that they were the best team in Europe you know <laughs> they were terrible like, mainly terrible like in the league and all that kind of stuff um, so it, it, competitions are a little bit random so I always prefer the Premier League but now I feel like given City have won so dramatically and so impressively won a couple of leagues I do feel like I would for the first time in, in well first time ever really I would definitely take the Champions League over the Premier League because there's no doubt it's for many people that Manchester City are the best team in, in England over the past two or three years, you know, no one can really question that. So I feel like um, we are ready for that moment. Um, maybe we just need a moment, you know, maybe we need something to connect with it. Um, and Guardiola said as well, like, uh, Barcelona didn't win the uh, the Champions League for like 100 years of their existence or something like that, you know, the European Cup. So sometimes you need that history with a competition to feel part of it. Um, hmm. And I guess with all the stuff from your way, friend, about when you see, it's tenuous, but you see, obviously, 
the comments about Manchester City ruining football, and you get it from like you know, high-up officials and all that kind of stuff, and there's a lot of cynicism towards competition. Personally, I, I don't agree with all of it. I agree with some of it. Um, but I feel like we maybe lack a moment to maybe feel like that we belong, you know, as a club. And I think if we had we had a, a big night um, and say we, I think what we've never had really is a night where we've done something special in that competition. Mm. Uh, I know we beat Barcelona 3-1 at one point, but it was a group stage game, you know, it never feels something. I feel like if we had a big, uh, I know we nearly got there, but I think as well, when we got to semi-finals and uh, with Pellegrini and we just we were, we were shambolic, uh, you know, in the case of Real Madrid and we didn't get a single shot on target in 180, 180 minutes. I feel like if we had a moment where we had we had a big big club like that and we and we took the game to them, we showed how good we could be and the fans got behind it on a night and we had our, our own famous European night. Maybe the um, emotion could change, but until then, I'm expecting a bit of cynicism. I know one day it'll change. You just will, <laughs> we'll, we'll get we'll get used to it and become part of the scenery. So. So City have already had a couple of uh, shaky results in the league this season. Um, what are your what are your weaknesses this year? Um, familiarity, I guess. Uh, it's it's people get used to us. Uh, it's also a little bit of like uh, a little bit of bad luck is involved in anything really. Like a yeah. the amount of injuries you get all of a sudden, there's not much you can do about that. You know, when when you have several key players out. Uh, uh, a little bit of bad, no, I would say bad management, but maybe not being, being as accurate as you wanted to be in the transfer market. Having Vincent Company leave, then also losing Laporte is just like, it's the worst case scenario, basically. We've gone from having experienced top-class defenders to two less, and then uh, Stone's going out, and then I've, so we've left, we've left with one defender, and that stuff does affect you, and you suddenly... Uh, and this wasn't meant to happen because we were meant to have, you know, Rodri's come in. He was, it looks fantastic to be fair to him, but he could have done with a stable team around him, you know, not yeah. changes constantly. And it's also football, you know, <laughs> football happens. And uh, sometimes a perfect storm can happen. And um, for example, Norwich, we were a mess with injuries and timing and Norwich were excited. You know, they were new to the, the league. They had nothing to lose. And um, not new to the league, you know, recently, obviously been there before, but uh, it just happened. And, um, We'll, we'll get back on track. We will do. We'll start winning games again. Uh, it's just uh, we need to get our defenders back. <laughs> Stones being back, hopefully, will be huge. Um, I don't think we've worked out how to play about Laporte yet. And I just think maybe as well we're probably missing Vincent uh, Company's influence because he's um, he's a one of a kind. Even if he's not playing, having him around the squad, he focuses it. I'm sure we will place it. I'm sure we'll get on. But he's always going to be in a... In a a spell of under any manager a moment where your excellent standards drop a little bit it just obviously depends how you react to it we can't expect three years of perfection uh, you know in the league so fingers crossed we get back on track but I reckon we'll probably run Liverpool very close and who knows how it'll end of the season just fingers crossed the defenders are back soon because that'd be really nice Do you think that you might have to enter the transfer market for defenders in January? Um I'm sure despite what they say they're probably looking at it uh, <laughs> I think the only chance we've got is maybe someone who's got a release fee or something like that because the January tax is ridiculous right. as is the Manchester City tax and um, uh, as much as we spend a lot of money they usually do try and stick to what they think they can afford Yeah. Uh, hence why we did pull out for like ridiculously for over uh, you know not ridiculously but like it was crazy how last minute it was with the Jorginho stuff and then Harry Maguire City were obviously in for him in the summer but didn't want to go to which is 80 million whether that's right or not that's none of my business you know <laughs> I don't tend to care too much about the finance side because I just I just like watching football, but the the club obviously will stick to it. I don't think we'll end up signing anyone. Um, there's rumours that someone like Ruben Diaz could have a release fee clause, which is 
makes it easier, obviously, because there's less haggling and stuff like that. Well, there's none at all, really. You just get it on with. But I think we'll probably... We'll say we're not going to be in for one, but I reckon we will look at it. Um, whether I think it'll happen or not, I don't think it will do. I think we'll just kind of make do and um, get to the summer. So finally, obviously we've got to talk about Pep Guardiola a little bit. He's been yeah. at City now longer than he was at Bayern Munich. By the end of this season, he'll have matched his time in charge of Barcelona. Yeah. Is there an expectation that he might leave soon? Um, I think he'll definitely fulfil his contracts. Uh, I just his circumstances are like um, are quite unique compared to what he had at Barcelona and Bayern. And at Barcelona, he obviously he quite famous for year football because of burnout and stress, and that wasn't even to do with the football. It was obviously to do, it was because he was basically and he's a lot of people close to him, you know, people write you know, the books about him and all that kind of stuff, is he was basically used as the pawn in a you know, presidential battle. Mm. And he hated all the politics side of it. And Bayern, you've got like so many ex-players you know, in the media telling him how to manage. And he never really warmed to it. I don't think he ever warmed to the crowd over there and warmed to life at Bayern, even though he did well. But I think of City, um, the club has been built for him. You know, the, mod- the modern version of Manchester City has been built for Guardiola. And he's even said in quotes where he's never been as content in a, you know, in a situation that... But he's even friends now with City's owner, and obviously he's got uh, Cheeky Bregenstein and Ferran Soriano, who's known from his time at Barcelona, who are very are basically his closest friends in football. And he is the boss there; he's the man. And like City, do everything they can to keep him happy. There's no internal politics. There's no um, there's no shareholders arguing with him about things or anything like that. He doesn't have to be the man who deals with stuff that is in football and the press conferences. Um, I think he's happy here and I think he'll stick to his contract just because he has another year left after this. Uh, just out of respect, really, to um, uh, his friends, uh, you know, the director of football and all that kind of stuff. Um, and for the chairman because, look, he's obviously paid very well and they put a perfect scenario in for him. And I think he'll want one more year just to slightly, obviously, the transition of, you know, the likes of David Silva and obviously companies gone and all the old guard are moving on. I think he could go at the end of his five years. Might be wrong. He might go after four years, but I can't see it. I think we'd probably know by now a little bit stronger you know he was going to do that I think there'd be, be leaks and stuff like that could be wrong hopefully I'm not but I think five years you'll see that out and then probably <sighs> take a year out and go off to Italy or something like that or maybe well, he's definitely not going to manage Spain put it that way given, <laughs> given everything that's going there at the moment um, he'll manage someone internationally one day but he definitely won't be Spain It's interesting that you say the club was built for him obviously the project to get Pep to Man City started well before he joined but do you think that the club has been built to outlast him? Can the kind of project that he has put in place since arriving could could carry on once he's gone? Yeah, um, definitely. Like I think the, the difference with Barcelona is obviously they lost their they lost the people who helped build that. You know, Barcelona, and um, and I do believe I don't think he'll be as good because I, I do believe Pep is he's the best. He's like you know he's the best at managing a, a really expensive highly oiled machine I think he is that obviously money's a big part of it but you know you don't give Lewis Hamilton the keys to you know Skoda you give him you know <laughs> one of the best Formula cars in the world and people say why well, could, could he do it at Doncaster like well why would he want to do it at Doncaster you know like well, for what it's worth I think he could make anyone better a better footballer I think he could make me and you a better footballer you know because I think he obviously understands football that much but I um, I think City have a procession planning I think 
City, like, it's, like as much as it is all about money, of course it's about money. I'm not stupid, but you've only got to look at what City are doing. You know, the City Football Group and stuff like that, where they're expanding their portfolio of clubs around the world. They're doing something genuinely that's never been done before. And um, I think City's designs, people don't quite realise how extensive they are and uh, how much they're really like trying to uh, commodify the sport and like kind of do things that haven't been done before. Whether you agree with it or not is a different question entirely, but. They they know I believe they know who's going to be the manager after the manager of Guardiola. I really believe that far in advance, and then we're seeing things now where we've almost got like I was chatting to someone the other day, and like most clubs have you know young players out on loan and stuff like that. It feels like City you've got young managers out on loan as well. Like it feels that way. Like we've mm. got uh, Dominic Torrent, like obviously he's Pep's right hand man. He's gone for a stint. Uh, at New York City and he's won the league over there and then we've got obviously Patrick Vieira was there for a little bit and we're I feel like we're seeing like coaches now like being groomed to be the next manager as well so we've got a bunch of clubs where where we can we can plant a manager to see how they get on it's weird I don't think we've ever seen that before by clubs and yeah. I think I've not really thought about it that way until recently but they actually are they are grooming the next manager on loan somewhere else keeping them within the city football group um, and I think that's the way they'll do it I wouldn't be surprised if we see like someone like Arteta be lined up next, or we've even seen recently, um, I'm not sure if you've noticed, Giovanni van Bronckhorst has come into Manchester City to do almost like a, uh, as he called it, an internship, which is crazy. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> he's, been he's been managing a top European club and done pretty well, you know. And now he's, now he's, now he's learning in Manchester City. So I think what City are doing is like, people, they're, I think they're so far ahead of how other clubs think sometimes. And when, when you go through City's transfers, there's a lot of money, but... They they work, you know. <laughs> they, they, they we're not people who City have bought, you know, a bunch of Galacticos. They don't really do that. They spend a lot of money, yes, but like Leroy Sarney wasn't a big star before, and Gabriel Jesus wasn't a big star before, and they were very good young players, definitely. Um, but they weren't like, you know, they weren't killing Mbappe wonder kids from you know from PSG or something mm. like that. They were the next generation. And I think City's hit rate for transfers is good because they're so well planned and we've got the money and we know how to spend it basically so I think like there is a plan for after Guardiola um, and I think there's plans for after Guardiola after Guardiola and uh, I'm not looking forward to that day because I still think he's the best in the world I think like the way you look at look at what happened to um, Barca in a post Guardiola world I think they've dropped and dropped and lost their identity and I think the, the challenge is to try and replicate that and I think they want to but um, I think we know what we're going to do whether it'll be successful I don't know but yeah I think we're, we've got a plan for it Steve thank you very much my pleasure, mate. Thanks to Chris, Hunter and Stephen for joining me on the podcast today. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and a kind review on iTunes. It really does help. The new issue of 442 with the in-depth interview with Raheem Sterling is available to order now. And while you're doing it, why not consider getting someone a subscription to the magazine for Christmas too? It's not too early. Next week, we'll be back covering El Clasico and how Barcelona and Real Madrid can get back to the top of Europe. The music you've heard is from Howl Griff, also available on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.